the effects they say in terms of like reduced oxygen supply to the brain from some of these poor breathing patterns that happen can last for years if you don't do anything about it after a concussion hmm. and it might just start small but it ends up being a snowball effect so it just gradually gets larger hello and welcome to the straight talking doctor podcast My name is Dr. Mark Cox and this is the podcast dedicated to improving your health and happiness. My aim is to demystify the complex world of wellness and mental health through eye-opening conversations with guests from any and every walk of life. No topic is out of bounds, no question too big or too small. As well as discussing my guests' inspiring stories, I want my conversations to fuel you all with useful and actionable tips that you can adopt into your daily lives. In this first series, we shall be taking a journey into mental health, tackling topics such as dealing with trauma and depression, overcoming addiction, and beating cancer not once, but twice. So thank you for joining me on this journey. Please sit back, get comfortable, and enjoy the ride. Today's guest is David Jackson, an ex-professional rugby player who was once hailed as the Ryan Giggs of Nottingham Rugby. Following a career-ending injury, David has embarked on both a physical and mental health journey that has led him to discover and become an expert in calisthenics and breathwork. This conversation is packed full of useful information and we cover a range of topics including head injuries, changes in career and the challenges that come with it, dealing with adversity breathwork and nasal breathing, and in particular, the science associated with this. Jacko is a master oxygen advantage coach, and his insights and updates on social media are a great place for anyone looking to improve their performance or find some much-needed motivation or inspiration to get up and move your body. Hello, Jacko. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me tonight and giving up some of your very busy and precious time. No, uh, no more precious than anybody else's. And uh, yeah, no, happy to be here. I'm really fascinated by everyone within the the sort of health and wellness space and particularly speaking to, you know, doctors like yourself that are are looking outside the box is always, um, always a great conversation to be a part of. And um, yeah, I'm happy to share hopefully I've got a few little snippets around the breathing side of things that can help people uh, that are listening. Absolutely. Uh, It's kind of a bit of a surreal one for me. I've sat down with a few guests so far, but this one particularly, I mean, I've actually followed you for a few years. I remember saying to you the first time we had a chat and and particularly with School of Calisthenics, I'm not sure how many, how many years now, but it's a bit surreal for me and and, and quite exciting (laughs) because, you know, I saw you on Instagram doing all these crazy moves, these, you know, these uh, human flags, muscle ups, thinking, God, this guy, what a beast. And now I'm sat chatting, having a podcast with you about, you know, the work you're doing now. And they're like, oh, it's just a, a weirdo that talks about breathing. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to see where you've taken your content and 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 what what sort of direction you've got in now, because it's something that I'm interested in. So, yeah, so yeah. absolutely. And actually more so to that, let's go back a little bit in time um, for some context. You were actually you know, a professional rugby player, something I didn't realize when I first followed you. Um, I'm yeah. a pretty good one at that, pretty high level. You play for Nottingham Rugby, uh, Rugby Club in the championship. So can you tell us a little bit about your time there? Uh, what, what was it like being, you know, at that high level of sport? Um, yeah, so I played my whole life. Like I actually grew up in, I'm in Nottingham right now and grew, grew up in Nottingham. I played for every, apparently, so the folklore goes, I played for every team at Nottingham from the under sixes to the, to the first team. Uh, the only team I didn't play for was the ladies. <laughs> um, 
but uh, yeah, so I was, no, I was very... You, you never tried to do that? <laughs> no, well, yeah, that just wasn't good enough. But <laughs> I, um, yeah, I was fortunate to play for my sort of boyhood team, I guess. I, there wasn't, I didn't go to any other rugby club other than at Knotts. And um, yeah, really interesting time. I did play, I did quite a few different things whilst I picked up a number of different injuries. So did some like um, courses in like sports psychology, sports nutrition, I did my engineering degree. I got a master's in engineering from Loughborough University whilst I was still playing rugby. So I, we were talking before we went on there, actually, saying how I like doing more than one thing at once. And the the, the worst I the, my the, when I was playing my worst rugby was when I had nothing else to do and I was only having one thing to focus on. And actually, I I was far better when I had something else on the side to sort of I don't know keep the mind occupied and keep sort of growing yeah. and learning. Yeah, absolutely. I like learning new things, so that sort of anytime you get a chance to to take something in another direction, it's I find it helpful. Yeah, definitely. I think it just keeps you slightly more stimulated, keeps that motivation going, doesn't it? And I guess for certain yeah. people, that that really helps. And then, so you were you were a professional rugby player for many years. I remember reading a, when I was doing my research a little bit for the podcast. You know, BBC sort of described you a bit of a cult hero and things. And and then something happened in the pre-season of 2013. And that led to a, a big change in your life. Can you can you expand on that for everyone? Yeah, I uh, I think I'd just been there for that long, so the, the fans knew me because I was I was someone that was always there and did uh, sport some fairly obnoxious haircuts at, <laughs> at times. One being a mullet, which makes you sort of stand out or has uh, adds a different conversation. But no, in um, in terms of rugby, yeah, I'd had a number of head injuries throughout my career. Uh, the first serious one in in an England trial when I was sixteen. Uh, like sort of taken to or monitored overnight, you know, made a full recovery in a few days. But over the course of from 16 to 31, um, yeah, a number of different head injuries that just gradually were getting worse and worse. Um, it was taking less to knock me out and it was taking longer to recover from them, which there was this cumulative buildup that we weren't aware of. Uh, when I seen this uh, in 2013 in training, um, preseason, I we were I don't remember anything of the day. Um, I don't remember anything of actually. Well, interestingly, I'd I'd bought um a, a bought a, wa- a, a Volkswagen T5 van to uh, convert into a camper van two weeks before my head injury, and that day when I had the head injury was the first day I drove it to training. So no one had seen it before, and uh, I apparently didn't even recognise it. So. It's absolutely uh, terrifying, yeah. isn't it? Uh, you yeah. know, and I, I, you know, my personal experience, I played rugby a little bit, nowhere near to the same level, but I, I've had a couple of concussions in my career. In sort of my career. Um, second, first one was worse, but the second one, I was, I was old enough to really sort of think, God, I don't want that happening again. I remember the memory loss, yeah. the confusion. I was walking sort of offside and, and didn't know where I was on the pitch until someone had to sort of drag me off. Um, yeah, yeah. And I didn't really plan on, on, on talking about this before the podcast, but you, you bring up a really good point about the head injuries and how things have moved on. So I did a, I did a, a short placement over, over in Australia with the Brumbies rugby, um, with a sports doctor there. And concussion has obviously come on massively in terms of our understanding of it and our protection of the player. So head injury assessments, I guess, when you were playing, what, what, were they even a thing? You know, and, and how have things developed? Man, I was um, I was very lucky in the so in uh, all it took to knock me out. I had a seizure on the training field and a bleed on the brain from literally two of us on the same team in the warm up, um, not tackling, no contact. It was we were playing touch. We we're on the same team. Both tried to catch the to catch the same ball, and he just banged into me. And I remember 
Uh, well, I, don't, I don't remember what happened, but my jaw on this side, he must have hit me on this side because that's where, where we're sore. Um, and it's one of those things that, like, you say, like, terrifying. It, um, you don't remember anything because almost I'm so glad you don't remember anything. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. um, I don't know. In my head, I didn't, I know I had a fit and a seizure, but I don't, I didn't experience it. So it does, it's, it's not, not like it happened. And you don't uh, even have to have a seizure for you to lose the memory as well, oh, which no. is even like so, no, so scary. No, it can be, no. it can be a minor thing in a way that you have a head knock and you don't really understand the gravity of, of what's happened to your head. And then suddenly you're experiencing these very sort of, uh, bizarre feelings um, and, and memory loss is just terrifying. Yeah, it was one of those things. So I, it happened that many times to me. That my first mem- uh, like memory on that day was being in the hospital, and I still had my I still had my boots and all my kit on. And I remember looking down at my um, boots, and I was like, "It's just it was like weird." And then I was like, "Hold on, this has happened because this has happened a number of times before." I was like. I was like, oh, I know what's happened. I turned to the physio and I was like, I've been knocked out, haven't I? And he was like, yes. And I was like, ah, I've asked you that before, haven't I? Not because I didn't know that I'd asked him that before, but because his reaction and how it happened so many <laughs> yeah. times before, I was like, you were I haven't, I've probably asked you that a hundred times, haven't yeah. I? Like, so I was almost able to almost like, not laugh at myself, but I knew the situation. And, and say, I was lucky, I was lucky in that, well, lucky in terms of uh, the recovery that I've made, but also... At the at the early part of my career, when someone got knocked down, they couldn't remember anything. Everyone, we just laughed about it. No one knew because you'd you'd never seen you'd seen that happen a few days later or a few weeks later. They're back to normal, and we weren't aware of any long term issues. So it was just it, it wasn't yeah it wasn't something that was took seriously. And I guess the understanding has got come on massively with long term effects of sort of that early onset dementia. And there's a specific type, and I think it's the Will Smith film Concussion. Actually, I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Anyone that hasn't, it's yeah, really yeah, yeah, worth yeah. watching. It's yeah. it's focused on the NFL and and some of the you know, yeah. damaging lasting effects that that were caused to the players there um, that ended up with the NFL, you know, being sued and, and, and uh, having to pay out a lot of compensation and that sort of thing. But the benefit of what's happened there is that now there is an understanding of the, the dangers of concussion um, long-term. Yeah, it was, and I say, the reason I was you saying I was, I was lucky was that NFL lawsuit was happening or had happened just before, prior to my injury. So when I, it was something that was being taken now all of a sudden it was being taken very seriously in in England within the RFU and so I yeah I had that and it was like this is something that but it's, again it's still t- I went for like so it happened in August I didn't actually like see the specialist and get told I had to retire until the Christmas right so I still, still had a delay, number yeah. of months where I was just going on like trying to get back to playing just in a yeah, just in a bad place, a dark place. I went back to hospital a couple of times, and they just told me to go back home. Yeah, um, it's like because there was it's that the, it was it was still massive gaps in the understanding. of going, there's nothing we can do. Just go home and don't like look at anything that's going to like stimulate your brain. Just sit in a dark just go room. And chill. Yeah, um, and there is stuff that we know uh, around around our breathing that can help, around respiration, like around doing some low level exercise like there, there is stuff but it's not yeah, it's still taking some time to come to come forward because it's the worst thing is having an injury and then not being told 
or not knowing when it's going to get better, if it's going to get better, just hoping it's going to get better, having no time scale at all, and then nothing that you can, or being told there's nothing you can do to help. Yeah, you feel absolutely helpless. Yeah. So, David, you, you got to this point, you had the seizure on the pitch, you'd had a bleed on the brain, and you were told later, like you said, a few months later, that you had to retire. What... Were you going through at the time, I guess, emotionally? How did you take that news? Where where was your head head at? Um, a great question, and, and probably often. I've recently, I hadn't spoken about this for quite a while. I mean, it was back. At, I mean, what is it? We're talking like nearly. It's going to be eight nine years. Uh, but done a couple of podcast interviews re- uh, last few months where it's come up, and I've probably reflected on it a little bit differently at time uh, now as time has passed. But something that was always um, just true is that there was a huge sense of relief because I was actually scared that I was going to not give up myself. I wasn't, I wasn't strong enough mentally to say, look, lads, like, I am not good and I can't do this anymore. Like, um, I, was, I was actually praying that the, that the specialist would make that decision for me and, and that is what happened. She was, she was worried about telling me I had to, I had to stop. Because she knew that obviously that meant that like you know what you're going to do for a job and blah blah. blah. Um, so yeah, she was worried, and I was like very. <laughs> I was like, thank you. <laughs> I was like, I was I was just relieved. Um, but then you might and your mind switches to yeah. Well, what what are we going to do? But I was I was sort of full of more a little bit of excitement of right. Okay, this is going to be a new chapter. Like what's going to happen? Like get myself better. It took me a year to be able to run without getting headaches and some of my symptoms, but stuff was getting. Stuff was gradually getting better and getting back to some normality. Because there was a period where my wife was very good, like because she just doesn't, she wouldn't, <laughs> she she is is the expert in tough love. So she would never, <laughs> um, never like uh, what's the word like mother me. It was, there was none. But there's no sympathy. I said to her once. <laughs> So you might have, no, no pity. There's, 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 sim- there's sympathy, but there's yeah, there's no like, ooh, you yeah. okay? Um, and um, and that is what I needed because it was very. You know, you're in a depression is a side effect of like concussions or something that, that can be one of the things. And, you know, you're you're at home. You can't do anything because if you don't watch TV, you get a headache. If you read a book, you get a headache and there's all these things going on. And so, yeah, you, you, you're not in a very good place mentally. You're also missing the lads at the training. You, you're missing being playing. And there's all those things. Um, your identity has probably been wrapped up to some degree in being a sports person. You know, we're not doing that anymore. But my, 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 I had a worry or a definite concern of like, I can't. As I stand now, it's like I don't know. Say it's like three months in, and I'm going. I, I couldn't hold down a job like this. And I remember saying to my wife when I was better, I was like, "Did you ever worry about like actually what we were going to do?" In terms of like, I wouldn't have been able. And she was like, "Yeah," <laughs> but I didn't say anything because me because her her view her and she was right. It was like me saying that to you is not going to make it any better. Like we've got to just try and crack on and see see how we go. But um, yeah, that was that was that was sort of concerning and mm. and worrying. But um, it sounds like you no, know, it is an incredibly difficult time to to sort of go through because, like you said there, even the things that you highlighted, there's a it's multifaceted. The change in your life you're dealing with yeah. one a physical insult that has got long-standing consequences but then there's all the other things that you you rattled off so you're balancing a lot of stuff and not working potentially at full capacity because you've had a had a serious head injury 
Um, yeah. So, so getting over that must have been but, difficult. Yeah, but there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of people that don't make partial recoveries or, or don't recover in like you know, uh, personality changes on just like huge, huge effects on cognitive function and that sort of stuff. And you know, I had a, I had a, a little snippet and window into that where. I remember going to the doctor after like about four months and him doing some like asking you some like simple questions of like, what day is it? And I knew what day it was, but then it was like, you know, what year is it? And you're like, mm, that's a bit tougher. Or, and then can you count back? Normally a, a classic concussion was counting back from hundreds in sevens. And I knew that because I, I know that that's one of the tests that they do. And he obviously had asked me a few things, which I didn't know the answer to. And then he asked me to count back from 100 in ones. And at that point, I'm like, I know what you're doing here. I know it's supposed to be sevens. And I know that ones is going to be really easy. And then I started and I'm like going, 100, 99. And then I'm like, 98. And then in my head, I'm going like, it's like I'm like going, I know that this is easier than like I know, it's like I know the answer, but I couldn't say it. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. And then I was like, I know that this isn't good. <laughs> so you clearly have have come on a hell of a long way since then, and we're going to talk about some of the things that you've achieved and and that you talk about, and that you know you're clearly very knowledgeable on on many different areas. So what what was the turning point i guess and, and where did you sort of springboard yourself to where you are now in in that journey what was what was it that, that allowed you to move forward well uh, so i mentioned that i've been at the rugby club for very long of uh, my whole life and so i knew the i got on very well with the the director of rugby or the ceo at the time simon beatham and he encouraged me to he was like take some time out to think about what what do you want to do moving forward from here and i'm really grateful for that having some time where you haven't got work and you can go, right, what are you, what's this next step going to be like for you? What are your priorities? And I make, I remember making some lists of like things that like are important to me and prioritizing things, looking at those things and going, okay, well, do I want to go and use my engineering degree? And it didn't tick enough of the boxes of things that I was doing. And then, you know, start my, the decision I made was to go into strength and conditioning. And I wanted to, I felt like that, utilized my sort of love of science uh, i wanted to stay involved in sports still i wanted to pass on what i'd learned to others and did some mentoring sort of uh, to young athletes as as part of that just a quick one on what you mentioned there i think writing a list is one of the most underrated uh things mm. you can do when you're faced with these big life decisions and like you say some of the simplest like the pros and cons or things you love or that you want to utilize when you're making these big life decisions, getting things on paper, same really as journaling, I guess it's, it's massive. Writing important. stuff down at it any time just, for anything is like, absolutely. For me. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, when I was doing my research, I saw, I saw in a quote from a quote of yours in the BBC on a, in the BBC sport article. And it said in, in reference to your calisthenics work, it said you, you were quoted saying it a hundred percent saved me. So I just found that quite yeah. a, a powerful thing so first can you just expand a little bit on what calisthenics is for anyone that doesn't know um and really what what sort of impact did that have on you um so calisthenics is the simplest uh, way to explain it. it's, it's body weight training so rather than using weights and um and machines to provide resistance to build strength it's using your own body weight um it comes from two greek words kalos and stenos which mean beauty and strength so some of the things that people you mentioned, I think you mentioned, so like human flags and handstands and some sort of, so rather than just 
easy sort of bodyweight exercises like sit-ups and push-ups that people get bored of a little bit quickly. You take those basics and you expand on them and then you could do some potentially, um, as we like to call them, uh, we call it redefining your impossible. Because when you try and do a, a human flag for the first time, which is like your whole body out horizontal, you look at it and you're like, even but not even before you try it, when you look at it, you like go, what? That is that real? It just looks like a <laughs> fake picture or is it Photoshop? And yeah, it feels impossible when you first try. But um, yeah, we, we sort of... Uh, we managed to use our our sort of uh, skills as or experience uh, as strength conditioning coaches working a lot within Paralympic sport where you got to break stuff down and think outside the box because you've got to change the training environment to suit the athlete in front of you because they might not be able to do the bog standard thing that's in the textbook. Um, so, yeah, how did it, it – uh, the reason I say it saved me was because – and it sounds it probably sounds dramatic, but it, in terms of my – I was always – like if you ask anyone that, that that played with me, I was like the motivated guy. Like uh, I might not have been like the most skillful, but if we're going to do something like a fitness test or anything like that, like you will not beat me. <laughs> like I'm just there for like just work ethic. Like that's what I'm, that's what I'm there for, and that's what I sort of prided myself on. Uh, I will try. I'm not not very good, but I'll try hard. And um, <laughs> what was really weird, right, was that when I finished playing. Before I finished playing rugby, I remember getting towards the end of my career. So I was 30, uh, 31 when I had my head injury. Uh, I just signed a new two-year contract, but I was getting towards the end of my career. So again, I was very grateful for that. There's other lads that have, have had it right at the beginning of their careers. A, a friend of mine, Finley Barnum, after, a, a year or so after I retired, he he retired as well in his like early 20s from the, from the same thing. And he, he, he's, he didn't have his career. So, But yeah, I, I, th- <laughs> I, I remember like specifically having a conversation with one of the lads going like, uh, another one of the lads, that really, we loved our, we liked our weights and we loved our gym sessions as part of the thing. And I, I was saying to him, well, mate, when I finish playing rugby, I am going to get so jacked, like you won't believe it. Like <laughs> I just, that's what I loved the gym. And I was like, that's what I thought I'd like to do. Basically bodybuilding. And um when I could get back to training, it was like, right, let's do that. That's what I said I was, that's what I thought I liked doing. And very, very quickly, I can't remember exactly how long, like, you know, not months, like we're talking like weeks or even just after a few sessions. I'm in the gym doing like bicep curls or some rubbish. Um, and I look in and I was like, what am I doing? I looked at myself in the mirror and I was literally like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. this isn't fulfilling you at all. And I was looking around at everyone else in the gym who were like, you know, training really hard. And I'm looking at them going, what are you training for? Because when the when the rugby was taken, I, when I wasn't playing for a game, well, what I realized was all of my motivation was based on the fact that there was a game at the weekend yeah. and you, you were going to have to perform. You to be fitter and stronger than the person you're playing against. Yeah, I get that. And you need you need purpose, don't you, in what you're doing? Yeah. When that wasn't there... I was looking around at everyone else going like, what are we all training for? <laughs> and, and and huge respect to people that I was like, you are training like I used to train, but I'm, I don't know, well, maybe they were, but you know, it, 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 generally they weren't necessarily like it wasn't their job. And so I was like, wow, this is, and that's what really affected me. And that was like, I'm not as, I'm not as motivated as I thought I was, which was an interesting thing to sort of check in on myself. But then what calisthenics did was it gave me something to get excited about and a goal to work towards. It wasn't something each week, but it was like, right, I want to do a human flag. Like that is me. Like mm. I've decided that's it's, it's captured my attention and my motivation just went back. I just had that purpose for my training and it wasn't anymore at all about like bicep curls in front of the mirrors to try and make your arms look bigger. It was not about how your body looked. It was about what you could do with your body. Yeah. And that mentally was so freeing 
in terms of like just your our, our self image and, and body image as well as just having something to work towards absolutely i think a purpose i can kind of be you can kind of take that concept and, and put it to lots of different areas of your life and if you don't have that purpose within what you're doing you you, you quickly lose that motivation that you need um, and just for context, so uh, Jacko and, and your colleague Tim have started School of Calisthenics uh, quite a long time ago now and and teach people how to move their body in that certain way and how to perform these these moves and and break down very easily on Instagram these very difficult you know moves into certain certain chunks and certain easy parts that you can then practice and work on, um, making I guess the impossible possible for people, which is pretty cool. We do our best. <laughs> I want to go into what you're doing now because um, that's what really drew me to, to doing a podcast with you, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And it, and it all revolves around the breath and breathing and breath work, this new concept I've, I've sort of come across over the last six months or so, I guess. And for you, it sounds like maybe the head injury triggered something in your mind about breathing because I've read that and spoke to you a little bit about it changed the way you were breathing. It affected your respiratory function. Can you tell us a little bit about that for you and maybe a little bit of the science that you're aware of of why that can happen? Yeah, sure. No, great question. I'd love to. Um, and this can happen with um, any concussion. Like it doesn't have, and to be concussed, you don't have to be knocked out. You don't have to be out cold. Like, and you certainly don't have to have a seizure or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, banging your head against the kitchen units or whatever, like, you know, people bang their head all the time. Um, and it's something to be aware of, of, of the symptoms and also like being aware of like, is it affecting, is it affecting our breathing? I think for, for me, it came as a part of, so I had the head injury in 2013 and I probably went for a good three or four years with no idea about this whatsoever. I was cracking on relearning to be a strength and conditioning coach and that being a strength and conditioning coach, and I still, I'm, I'm that and, and, and still run, you know, the school calisthenics and we're still teaching calisthenics. Um, it's the, the breath work is something that was um came on my radar from a point of view where i was starting to explore the fact that i just didn't it was almost like intuition right i just didn't feel like fully like if i made a full recovery yeah i don't feel i feel like the way i described it is that i felt like i was going through life and training and stuff like the handbrake was just ever so slightly on <laughs> yeah i know the feeling and like people go like i was running like a a, a 20 minute 5k which for some people is like well it's well fast like and you know but it it just it felt like i had the handbrake on slightly um and one of the i had some some sort of like issues around my like so as part of my head injury i had like a whiplash um so i had some issues around like c5 c6 for a while um and like just yeah things around my neck and my shoulder like that just almost something in the background wasn't quite right and then you know, I wouldn't have been able to piece this together if I hadn't have gone through some of the teachings that I'd learned with all the strength and conditioning like education that we were doing, where you start to understand how the body functions a little bit better and then start to have an appreciation for how different parts of the body are going to affect others. And then something that sort of ticked the box for me of like, right, what's, what could be affecting how I feel? What could be affecting like my neck, tightness in my shoulders and things like that's going on in the background that I might not be aware of? Um, and breathing was one of those things that, okay, breathing is a movement pattern, just like a squat is a movement pattern. Um, you do it, you potentially do 20, 25,000 repetitions of breathing a day. 
And I had enough of a, an understanding that if you do something wrong 25,000 times, even if it's just a tiny little bit wrong, mm. then that's going to have some pr- quite profound effects potentially. Um, I got put onto the Oxygen Advantage by Richie Norton, the Strength Temple. Um, he was like, if I, he was like, if you want to take a deep dive into breathing, read the Oxygen Advantage book by Patrick McKeown. So I was like, no problem, read that. Um, <laughs> at school, I was a terrible at English um, and ter- never read any books or anything like that. Like, and I'm, I'm bad at reading and spelling. And if, if anyone sees my Instagram post, I'm sure you'll find lots of grammatical <laughs> errors within them. But um, the I read that book so fast. I just could not <laughs> put it down. I was like fascinated by it. It had just the perfect blend for me of like the science on the background. Like, so my... Um, my sort of like science background was in chemistry. So it was like ticking that sort of chemistry box. I'd probably not really, um, you know, I'd not really done an awful lot of looking into the chemistry of the, of the body for a while. And, um, it then things started to make sense. Uh, There was, I came across some research papers that were saying that it was trying to suggest literally like 99.9% of the time, if you've had a concussion, you will have had some disturbance to your respiratory center in the brainstem. So, the respiratory center is in the in the brainstem, and if if that's if you, th- you imagine that's like in the middle of the the brain, when you have a concussion, I got hit on this side. The the you get like two impacts. You've got the impact where the brain got hit, or the the head the, the head got hit, and then the brain rattles and like hits on the inside of the of the skull on the other side. So you tend to have these two like points of contact. Then what's happening on the inside? Is like the basically the the respiratory sense is just getting like rattled. The brain is just getting like shaken up and rattled. That 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 sort of like effect can change oxygen oxygen supply to your brain. Um, it can change your sensitivity to carbon dioxide, which is our primary stimulus to breathe. So this was one of the big things that that came out or first like wow moments of like when you are people that are listening now. When you take your next breath and you feel like you don't think about it. It just happens automatically. The thing that the brain is monitoring is not oxygen going down. The primary thing that it's looking at as to when you take your next breath is CO2 levels rising in order to get rid of excess levels of carbon dioxide. And it's not to say that carbon dioxide is a bad thing to have in the body. It actually plays a vital role in oxygen delivery and a lot of other things. But if um, what happens is we end up getting into some poor habits of breathing too fast, we start then breathing out too much carbon dioxide all the time. And then we create this vicious cycle of then changing our sensitivity to, um, to carbon dioxide and therefore then want to breathe faster all the time, even when you're not doing anything. And then we end up like, we can't facilitate like good, um, functional breathing in terms of the mechanics of using the ribs, articulating nicely to create space for the diaphragm. So we end up literally just mouth breathing because the nose is providing too much resistance for us so we mouth breathe and we sort of upper chest breathe so we get more stressed we have higher levels of uh, sympathetic tone and therefore like inflammatory markers and then like all this tightness around the chest the neck and the shoulders and yeah things things just like can creep in that, that just well that then but just becomes a snowball effect and if we don't we need to do something to stop that um they affects they say in terms of like reduced oxygen supply to the brain from some of these poor breathing patterns that happen can last for years if you don't do anything about it after a concussion. Hmm. And it might just start small, but it ends up being a snowball effect. So it just gradually gets larger. 
Well, absolutely. If you do something twenty five thousand times in a day, that that concept is you know, it's like compound interest. It's it's absolutely <laughs> yeah. huge after a while, isn't it? I guess there there's multi it's multifactorial, isn't it? There's multiple things going on if we don't breathe in an efficient way, you know, mechanically, yeah. but also I guess on a sort of scientific level in terms of the you know that like you were saying the respiratory sensors in the brainstem and therefore then the sensitivity to carbon dioxide and you know there's there's multiple things going on i guess my uh, my question about that is you realized that your breathing was off because you had a head injury but actually a lot of people's breathing is probably similar why are we not very good at breathing um good question there's a couple of things, and actually, I'd love to give people some practical things to to take to take away. One would be like if you t- just think about your breathing now, if you just tune into how you're breathing, is it is it through your mouth or is it through your nose, like in and out? Um, we don't need to be doing this in through the nose, out through the mouth. Um, we want the we want to be breathing in and out through the nose. Is it is it loud or is it quiet? Um, and where's it coming from? If you put one hand on your chest and one hand just below your sternum, where your diaphragm sits, does it tend to be your bottom hand that moves or does it tend to be your top hand that moves? And, you know, if you find that you are breathing from the mouth rather than the nose, then that's a sign of dysfunction. If your upper hand is moving on your chest, like that's a sign of, of dysfunction. Um, and if your breathing is quite loud, um, then that's also also a sign. Um, a little one that you could do, a really nice one, really simple one to do is just measuring how many breaths you take in a minute. So just sitting relaxed and comfortable, put a stopwatch on for a minute and just count how many breaths. Just observe your breathing. Don't change it, slow it down or speed up. Just observe it. And we want to be trying, we're wanting our breathing rates at rest to be around 10 to 12. Whereas a lot of the time when people are experiencing uh low levels of stress just within the life and maybe just like uh, a poor work-life balance or just emotional stress or some physical stress or anything that's bad sleep and all these things can lead us to without realizing breathing then like much faster like i had someone the other day was at 22 22 breaths per minute so that 22 would score on our hospital observation system so there's a system in place in hospital that that nurses take observations and then if they, you know, there's parameters and if they are outside of the normal parameters, they score. So then yeah. the doctor is flagged and said, oh, look, so if a patient becomes unwell, often the first thing that actually changes, interestingly, is respiratory rate. So people become what's called tachypnea. Yeah. Um, so their respiratory rate goes up. 22 would definitely score on pretty much every system that I've yeah. ever, you know, every system I've ever worked in. Um, so I'd be called potentially to go see a patient at 22. That suggests that there's something wrong, potentially, you know, a serious infection or something like that. But I guess it, it feeds into what you mentioned before, this term sympathetic tone. And when yeah. the sympathetic nervous system, which I talk about all the time, is, is activated, which most of us or lots of us have you know, a constant low-level stress and our sympathetic nervous system is always turned on slightly, there are so many negative effects from that, including potentially breathing in a dysfunctional way. Yeah. And, it's, and it's, people will be able to probably, um, even if they don't, consider themselves to be having thought much about breathing before that they'll know not only will it affect your breathing but you've also got the it, the other way around like it, your breathing actually affecting that so if you th- if you imagine what does someone that look if someone's stressed what do they look like they look like 
their shoulders are raised, they're like tense forwards, there's a lot of flexion tone, their mouth breathing, and it's like, and it tends to be quite fast. And it's like, ah, oh, have you seen someone doing like this? And then they're like, if they're like talking really fast, like talking is expelling air as well. Like, so if someone's stressed, everything's like high energy and da da da. And actually, what that's doing, being in that state, like that is just driving this over breathing pattern, but also sending signals of stress, sympathetic tone to the brain. Like the, we associate or we have this relationship between that faster mouth, upper chest, shallow breathing with our stress response. They go hand in hand together. So it's not like a one way street, like they're both feeding each other. And that's why we can get so much of this sort of snowballing effect. Yeah. The nice thing, the nice thing is, it can be for some people, not for everybody, but for some people, it can be as simple as thinking about, well, let's just do the opposite of all those things. So what's the opposite of mouth breathing, nasal breathing? What's the opposite of upper chest breathing, breathing from lower down with the diaphragm? The difference between vertical breathing that's shallow, well, deep breathing that's that's hor- more horizontal. Mm. Um, fast breathing, breathing slower. Loud breathing, breathing quieter. So even for some people, just being a little bit more aware of that um, and practicing a little bit of time of like, okay, I'm going to breathe through my nose. I'm going to try to breathe slower, quieter, even just those things, slower and quieter. I guarantee you spend a few minutes doing that, you'll feel calmer. Yeah. There's a difference between if someone's really struggling with like anxiety, like just telling them to slow down, slow their breathing down and chill out. Like that's not good. That's not going to do. We need to give them some more tools to do that. But if someone's just generally like got into some bad habits, but they don't necessarily feel particularly stressed or they don't feel like on the edge of a panic attack in terms of anxiety, that they can actually just think about breathe quieter, breathe a little bit slower, be a bit more aware during the day. It's not like we have to do an hour's worth of breath work every day to sort ourselves out. Not at all. Far from it. I think the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think if I spend an hour doing good breathing, but terrible breathing for the other 23 hours of my day, which one's going to have the impact? Yeah. Which one's going to change habits? So I'm interested in helping people make breathwork normal. It's just we should be breathing well as a normal part of our day-to-day lives and just give, having having the understanding of what those, basics, that, what those basics are, it can be as simple as that. Yeah, it's another area of fitness, I guess, that's you know, trying to make that. A normal thing to to practice or to to even think about, and that just uh, that struck a chord with me where where you were talking about just getting someone to notice their breathing and then just focus on it and and take a little bit of a breather if you pardon the pun and be slow slow <laughs> yeah, yeah. slow with the breath and, and you know take some deep meaningful breaths and actually what you're doing there is coming into the present, um, you yeah. know allowing your brain to focus on what is happening now around you. And that, you know, as we know, if you have ever done any meditation or mindfulness, it's the same concept of, you know, coming into the now and, and allowing your brain a, a breather, really, um, to not be worrying about the future or, or, or the past. Yeah. You've mentioned nasal breathing a couple of times um, and its potential benefits and how important it is. Um, I was talking with a colleague of mine today who's, mm-hmm. who's quite into their running and I was, uh, I was saying, oh, I'm doing a podcast tonight with a, with a chap who, who talks about nasal breathing. She said, oh, there's no way I could do that. You know, I, you know I've started she can. running recently. She can. Yeah, yeah. She started running recently long distances. And she said, no, it'd be too hard. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to get some information for you tonight. And, and I think it's something that I've seen a few times. I want more information on myself. I've, I've had a little look at the science on why it's better. I'll, why send, her my, I'll send her my new ebook. Yes, exactly. There you go. Um, but. Let's talk a little bit about why why is nasal breathing so good for us? Yeah. 
Okay, so this is where there's just like a little, there's a sort of the crux to it. I need to think of a good analogy for this, um, but I'll skip the analogy of just being basically, if you don't use your nose for breathing, it's not surprising that you're not going to be very good at using your nose for breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Here's here's an analogy for you. I always wipe my ass with my right hand. (laughs) I recently tried starting to do it with my left. I'm terrible at it with my left. (laughs) Okay. But I could do it with my left. It's not that good an analogy because your nose is actually designed for breathing, whereas my left hand is no more designed for wiping my ass than my right. But your nose is designed for breathing. I hope you're not wiping your ass as long as you're running for. (laughs) That's why that analogy doesn't work. (laughs) It depends. It depends. and so I think it was like, there's a, uh, there was a paper, it was like Cottle in nine, it was like ages ago, like tens of years ago, I can't remember the date of it, but like a long time ago, identified 30 different, he said, and it wasn't even saying, um, it was like th- at least 30, it was like 30 is how many functions of the nose he'd found, and he was expecting that in time we'll find even more. So at least 30 different functions of the nose that prove that it's designed for breathing. Whereas the mouth is designed for eating. I always say like, the two things are linked, right? Your airway is linked. Kids put a pee up their nose and like can snort it and try and eat it. Everyone can do, you can do that. It's pretty gross, but you can do it. Now that doesn't mean you eat through your nose. Everyone thinks when I say that, everyone's like, oh, this has just been stupid, right? Yeah, but you, you could, the same way your mouth is for eating, it's not for, it's not for breathing. We we disrupt the we disrupt your the the microbiome and the um the, the digestive processes by breathing through the mouth to start with it disrupts that mouth breathing um, provides no protection for your upper airways. If you wake up in the morning because you've uh, with a dry mouth, that's because you're dehydrating yourself by breathing through the mouth. We lose forty two percent more moisture when we breathe through the mouth than when we breathe through the nose. So we're dehydrating ourselves now. The slower nasal, the, your nose is much smaller than your mouth, so it provides more resistance, but in a good way. It gives your diaphragm something to pull against. The resistance slows down our breathing, which helps with oxygen uptake in the blood and in with the tissues. But if you're not used to doing that, as in breathing through your nose when you're running, like your friend, you'll be like, this isn't better, Jacko. This feels horrendous. <laughs> or you're even like her. Before you've even tried, you've just completely dismissed it already. Now, if your nose is blocked, it's because you're not using it. You know, you weren't designed with a blocked nose. Um, it's, it's there for breathing. And so we need to unblock it and we need to then keep using it. And the more you use it, the more it stays unblocked. And then you get back to where we should be. Mm. Now, there are some things like, um, I'm not the expert in this sort of field, but James Nestor has done a lot of research in this. Author of yeah, he's Breath. written a book called Breathe, hasn't he? Yeah. Where um, the our our airway, because of our facial structure um, over generations, has changed because for for a number of different reasons. One of them being like our diet and not eating um, or, or being able to chew hard foods enough when we're younger, and so we don't develop the the jaw um, in the same way. And so, like a lot of the time, he he makes a good his way of explaining. It, I think he makes a really good point. There's no other animal in the entire animal kingdom that has that has too many teeth for its mouth whereas we have to have teeth taken out when we're kids because our mouth isn't big enough and that's an absolute lie it's just a, it's not a lie it's just like a miss people not understanding and we didn't realize 
is that the mouth is, we haven't got too many teeth, it's that the mouth has shrunk. And when we take teeth out, it just everything shrinks even more. Um, and then what happens is you've got a smaller airway. And then when your airway is smaller, you find it hard to breathe through your nose because you've got a smaller airway, and then you breathe through the mouth, and then you get into those bad habits. Um, tongue posture, people will have, because of the uh, space in the jaw was compromised, um, they then get lazy with their jo- with their tongue and their tongue becomes weak. The tongue should be, resting position should be at the roof of the mouth behind the front teeth. That helps keep the airway clearer as well. Um, so when you start trying to nasal breathe and you're not used to it, yeah, it's hard, definitely. I couldn't run to the end. I, so I've, I'm like, right, nasal breathing. It's all about nasal breathing, just like your, um, a bit like your friend. And I'm like, right, I'm going to, but I went, right, I'm going to try it. I got to the end of my street, which is about 50 meters. And there was snot just pouring down my face into my mouth. And I was like, this is horrendous. <laughs> but rather than giving up on it, I went, I understand the science and the rationale that says I should be able to breathe through my nose. The fact that I can't is an alarm bell to me. Rather than going, oh, well, I've sacked that off. It was an alarm bell to me to go like, you've got some work to do, pal. Like, you've still got some problems with your breathing. That You should be able to do this. And so that, that then, yeah, that then became a, a daily thing for me of like, right, I'm, I'm committing to improving my, my breathing to improve my health. Um, and in terms of how I got into the, like how I got into teaching it now was I, I tried to improve myself having read like a book, but I just wasn't, I didn't fully get it. And I was like, I need to understand this properly. So the author of the book, uh, Patch McKeown, has got a whole training framework, and you become you can become a certified auction advantage coach. So I did my training with him, own it not to teach it, only to just learn for my own self. Yeah. But the effects on on me in terms of my yes, my running and athletic performance, but even more so, like the effect on my ability to be more mindful. You know, you talk about mindful before, like. I, I was never any good at being able to like do mindfulness. And Patrick always says like the people that need to do meditation are the ones that say they haven't got time to do it. Mm. And it's like, and it's so true, but having a, my reason of, I want to, I, I, I had a desire and a motivation to improve my breathing because I knew what, how that would potentially impact me and my health and my longevity. So I was committed to doing that. And by doing that, I was, spending more time being mindful about my breathing because it was one of the things I needed to do. And then I was nasal breathing when I was running and then all the other stuff. That, um, yeah, it had such an impact on me that I, I couldn't not <laughs> talk about it and couldn't not share it and, and, and try to help some other people with it as well. And from a training, the training side of it, you know, it, if I'm going to talk to someone about training and talk about calisthenics, now that I know the role that like breathing plays in our physical ability to be able to perform, like I can't not I can't not mention it because yeah. I, otherwise I feel like I'm holding something back from you. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't something that I knew at the start, but it's something that is is just part of a part of an evolution of that. Absolutely, I think it's it's interesting when you you hear stories about when someone adopts something new. I say nasal breathing, but there's there's other examples, and they they do it for a certain reason. Then all the other effects that it has across the, yeah. their life and i'm sure there's multiple things that that you've noticed in terms of like the science of it as well what sort of caught my eye and my scientific mind is that the nose is obviously full of cilia or little hairs which clearly the mouth isn't which are basically designed to stop particles going into the lungs you want to keep the lungs as clean as possible you don't want any foreign debris in there at all um 
because you you know anyone that has um, a poor swallow we don't let them swallow in hospital and we will give them thickened fluids or we feed them through a, through a tube into their stomach because if anyone gets anything in their airway um, that shouldn't be there like food there's a huge chance that they're going to develop a really nasty infection um, and so it's it's absolutely pivotal so that that just shows you evolutionary uh, in an evolution sense that we need to breathe through our nose and and that it is clearly clearly very important for us. The other thing that I've seen is there is some evidence that when we breathe through our nose, we actually release nitric oxide, yeah. which is something that we all produce in our bodies all the time. But high levels of nitric oxide, nitric oxide is, is what's called a vasodilator, so it dilates our blood vessels. And so when you have high levels of that, we have um, dilation of the blood vessels, you get blood flow to the muscles, to the brain, um, which is always a good thing. It means you're getting more, more oxygen to your brain which uh, you know you only can imagine will help you function better. Yeah, and that was a that was a big part of my rehab. Like I was saying, the uh, reduced blood supply and oxygen supply to the brain. So, like, yeah, hugely making sure that we're improving how we breathe. And you, like that that nitric oxide, you said that there's none of that found in the mouth either. It's interesting. It's um, it's antiviral, so protecting us from things like COVID. Not only should we be wearing a mask, we should actually be breathing through our nose and. Mm how that's not been just been told to us like is crazy because um yeah that would have a, a, a huge impact on people as well it, it also one of the uh, interesting one from like um oxygen oxygenation of the body when we breathe the nitric oxide in and take it through the upper airways and into the lungs it helps distribute blood within the lungs more evenly so rather than blood being sat in the bottom of the lungs because of gravity just pulling it down it helps to distribute it a little bit more evenly and then uh, that's going to allow oxygen to be transferred into the bloodstream from the lungs more efficiently rather than just blood being sat at the bottom. So again, another one for your friend when she's running, that nasal breathing will help her get oxygen into into the blood and into the tissues. Well, And that's how it works. One of the, I think, theories long-term, how it makes it more efficient for you to do exercise nasal breathing, in it, when you are nasal breathing, sorry. That, yeah, you become a more efficient machine for that you know, uh, diffusion of the gases uh, from the blood and uh, into the atmosphere and back and forth um, through through your lungs. Yeah. Well, and on that, there's a so on that there's um there's some there's some really there's a one really nice study from a triathlon coach uh, George Dallum in 2018 tested out this theory with his athletes that had been adapted to nasal breathing. They'd been nasal breathing for at least uh, six months. I think some of them up to like three years, and they did VO2 max tests nasal breathing and then mouth breathing and their respiration rate was 22 percent less when they were nasal breathing so they had the, like, the same output so they were breathe like they're basically doing less work in terms of breathing because they're more efficient at breathing and all the way through getting it in getting it to the blood getting it to the tissues all the way through that being more efficient so if you're breathing 22 percent less you're saving energy. You're not wasting energy breathing, and that energy then can be used for whatever it is the exercise that you're doing. Absolutely, and, and I mean, you've been doing your own sort of experiment on Instagram. I've seen with VO2 max <laughs> uh, in terms of nasal breathing and, and showing your followers and yourself improving that VO2 max through nasal breathing, which I think is fantastic. Can you explain to everyone what VO2 max is? Um, so the maximum amount of oxygen that we can use within a minute of. Uh, you know, like you know, sort of like high intensity exercise, so the maximum you can do in a minute. 
one of the things that's been really interesting for me and that I, I embarked on a, on a, on a challenge of trying to do my first ever marathon, um, and, and, uh, wanted to do it nasal breathing to just prove the point that, well, prove, prove, prove a theory correct to myself or like to go out and actually do it, um, that it's more efficient. And so you're not going to be as tired. You're not going to hit the wall when you're running for that long. And I did all of my training, um, at a guy, one of the guys at Vivo Barefoot, if you come across there, one of the running coaches yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then some advice from Tony Riddle, uh, the natural lifestylist. He's ran barefoot from Lands End to John O'Grace. He knows a thing or two about running long distance. Um, about training aerobic efficiency. So I had, I was nasal breathing. And then you have to, when you're starting off, you have to run very slowly to be able to maintain nasal breathing. Otherwise, it like you're breathing so hard, like your nose closes up on itself and you end up going to go want to go to mouth breathing. So you have to just slow down a little bit at start to allow the adaptation to take place. But when you can work on improving your efficiency, um, working at 180 minus your heart rate, uh, heart rate, <laughs> 180 heart rate minus your age. Sorry. Yeah. So for me at 39, it was like stay under 141. Um, and at that threshold of where you start to lose your sort of go from aerobic to anaerobic is, is seems to be where you start to find nasal breathing more challenging. Yeah. So what I noticed was as you just honed this efficiency of breathing and just the whole aerobics and respiratory system together was that I could, uh, my pace at the same um, heart rate started to increase so i might be running like uh, a six six and a half minute k at 140 heart rate and nice nasal breathing and then a few weeks later i'm like looking at my pace going I've, I, i'm not looking at my pace i'm looking at my, i'm making sure my heart rate stays low enough and then occasionally you like notice oh hold on a minute i'm running like six minute k's now a few weeks ago i was running 630 but my heart rate is still 140 or actually heart rate's even lower my heart rate's like at 138 you're like okay, this is really doing something. The aerobic efficiency is about being able to slow your breathing down to tolerate higher levels of carbon dioxide. So changing that sensitivity of carbon dioxide we talked about earlier on. Because carbon dioxide in the blood is the catalyst to allow hemoglobin, which is the oxygen-carrying component of red blood cells, to release oxygen and let it go out of the blood into the tissues. You can still feel out of breath and have... Um, uh, 98% blood oxygen saturation if the if the oxygen is staying in your blood and it's not being not being released because you're blowing you're breathing <laughs> you're running and panting like a dog and so you're getting rid of all that carbon dioxide because you're too sensitive to it and then oxygen isn't getting into your muscles and into your tissues as efficiently so you still feel out of breath and we then get this snowballing effect whereas when we train ourselves to breathe slower and breathe it sounds a bit crazy because it sounds like the opposite of what you do, but actually breathing less air rather than more allows the oxygen that's in the body to actually get to the tissues more efficiently. So for me, and the proof is the fact that I'm running at a faster pace in terms of speed, but my heart rate is either the same or lower, meaning the system is not working as hard to do more work. You've become more efficient. I've become more efficient. I've also seen you do something else in your training, which is completely fascinating. And, and the science, I think, that you can explain about this um, is amazing, really. And that's about breath holding. So tell me a little bit about breath holds and, and, and how that improves performance. 
Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, I can't take any credit for this at all. This is all from Patrick McKeown and, and the Oxford Manager and other people that have researched it, but we just, we just take the research and try to apply it. The, um, so breath holding, there's, there's, there's two things with the breath hold. Well, or one, one thing is holding the breath is a completely normal thing to, to do. And, um, one like example that uh, gets talked about is the fact that like diving to try and get like seafood effectively like way back in the day before we had we could just go to tesco and just pick it up other shops are available you know what i mean and um so it's not like this crazy thing but this day and age it can be a bit people can think you're a bit funny walking down the street or going out and walking the dog and then you're pinching your nose and you're holding your breath and going what's all that about but um if you can't hold your breath for very long that is also a sign of dysfunctional breathing if i if i if i exhale and hold my breath if after five, 10 seconds, I'm like starting to panic, that is a sign that you are too sensitive to that buildup of carbon dioxide that you're not letting out. Remember, it's not, the ox- it's not that you haven't breathed more oxygen in. There's plenty of oxygen in the system. Um, it's to do with the, the carbon dioxide level. So um, the breath holding is a tool for training to improve our oxygen carrying capacity of the blood in, in two ways. There's an immediate effect and there's a delayed effect. So um, the research seems to show that there's something around the the breath hold needs to be challenging so you're having to like work really hard on it um and of around 30 seconds or more Hmm. at this point um the spleen which is a uh, acts like a blood bank holds about eight percent additional red blood cells people the spleen um contracts and releases some immediately some red blood cells and i like to think of it as a as a, a way that the brain's almost having this noticing at this point okay oxygen has come down how can I help us get some more oxygen going around the system? Here you go. Have I've got this bank here. There you go. Have some red blood cells. And that lasts for about an hour or so, and then they'll get reabsorbed back by the spleen. So it's not a long-term thing. But um, when you do practice breath holding, you're exposing your body to these higher levels of carbon dioxide that are building up, and that will help to change the sensitivity you have to carbon dioxide to help you like restore those breathing patterns and breathe a bit slower and all that. So there is, it's multifaceted, but the other longer term effect is where this EPO production comes in. So again, a, uh, a signal that's created when the body is experiencing strong levels of hypoxia. So just that's a fancy word for low oxygen. Um, it will, the, the kidneys will be, uh, stimulated to produce, um, more EPO naturally. So it's a, a hormone in the body. So yeah, EPO produced more naturally um, by the kidneys. And then there's about a three to four day delay where that EPO means um, that the bone marrow will actually start to create some more red blood cells. So we can see literally like if you, I've never done it, it was something we actually probably need to try and do is like actually have some bloods taken, do a series of training for X amount of time and then have your bloods taken again. But they see it in people that practice a lot of uh, breath holding, like in free divers, where they will have like an increase of like five, six, seven percent um, of hemoglobin percentage within the body. So like showing that we have created more oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. I find it amazing how the I mean the body just adapts to what we put it through. Um, but mm. that yeah. is a, a one of these biohacks, I guess, that we can tr- do something it's altitude consciously. Training. Yeah, it's altitude. It's like a natural way of doping. You know, you're, yeah. you're producing, uh, you're causing your body an insult and it's, the response to it is giving you a performance advantage in, t- in, you know, in the form of uh, some lovely red blood cells that are the oxygen carriers of the body, which yeah. will help you, you know, help you do more uh, and work harder and, and be more efficient, I guess. 
That can help someone. That can help anyone, though. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to be like trying to run a marathon to 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 benefit Absolutely, from yeah. working on your breathing a bit. And people have been going to altitude to get benefits of altitude training for decades. Um, all this does is gives you the opportunity to practice like breath holding. It's, it's, the research shows like the, the strongest contraction of the spleen after five breath holds. That's it. Two minutes rest in between. So it's like it takes ten minutes to do. It's really interesting hearing about these breath holds and it's tr- it sort of uh, jogged my on my mind of what my experience of, of breath work is and, and listening to what you do in breath work is quite different. Um, what I've what I've done with breath work is, is uh, there's a community based in Manchester who do cold water therapy and breath work um, and it's called Reservoir Dogs. Shout out Reservoir Dogs. They, um, <laughs> nice. It's a great bunch of people, and and they they do these sessions. They run these sessions, and I think with that, it's it's more in it, there's multi multiple benefits that that the guys report from that. But the main yeah. one and the, the more, most tangible one you feel is is the mental health side of things, and you know this feeling of connection to the other people there. Um, but part of that, you go down. There's someone who will do a guided meditation or a guided breathwork session. And they do what's called holotropic breathwork, which is yeah. basically breathing in and breathing out fast and you're blowing off your co2 you're um you're you're built you're you know delivering a lot of oxygen to your blood and you highly oxygenate yourself and then what you do is you do a breath hold and that then flips things the breath hold will flip things you do sort of you know anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes or, or longer than that some of the guys can do um and the co2 then comes back and you get this this sort of hypercapnic effect and you know i've had some very intense experiences doing holotropic breathing where you get this tingling you can get what's called tetany where you get um you know tightness in the muscles and and it's amazing what you can do with your breath and i guess that's what triggered my interest in 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 things Mm. um but it is interesting hearing about the potential benefits of breath holds and breath work in general but from a from a from i guess mainly from a from a physical effect and that more of the scientific terms there you know with the yeah. epo and things um i just think it's absolutely yeah. fascinating yeah there's uh because there's some interesting there's a little bit like what you said there on the when we're doing like the 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 holotropic style or tumor style or people have come across like wim hof is obviously the most yes. famous guy people come across the the understanding what we know about carbon dioxide being a stimulus to breathe when we breathe heavy and breathe fast like we're getting rid of that carbon dioxide the reason I can hold my breath for two, three minutes after doing that style of breathing isn't because we've um, got more oxygen in the body. It's because we've got rid of the carbon dioxide, which is the stimulus to breathe. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the actual the reality of when we've got rid of that carbon dioxide, the we haven't got that catalyst to for, to allow oxygen to release yeah. into the bloodstream. Um, but the stimulus to breathe is just it's it's just being given it's being governed by getting rid of that carbon dioxide. What we try to do from changing people, improving people's breathing on a day to day basis with the oxygen advantage is going right. Rather than getting rid of that carbon dioxide so you don't feel the need to breathe, we're going to actually change and improve gradually the sensitivity that your brain has to carbon dioxide. So in just in your general day to day you can breathe slower and you can breathe lighter and you can breathe more calmly because you haven't got that stimulus to breathe quite as strong. So it's actually training that rather than it being a one instant little um, little hit, if that makes sense. We've gone through different bits on, on breathwork now and, and you're a massive advocate for the potential benefits. Someone sat there, listened to the podcast and they think, 
what are these guys talking about? It's just breathing, you know. <laughs> what is your, your, what would you say to people like that who are a little bit skeptical? What's your message to people about it? I was there myself before. I never looked at breathing at all. Um, you just, it, it, it is going on in the background. and The body is amazing. The body isn't going to just stop breathing because you don't think about it. Um, if, you're, if you're doing it a little bit dysfunctionally, the body is also fine. It will carry on. But can you feel better? Um, things that we know that we know that our breathing is intimately linked with things like our heart rate, our blood pressure, our autonomic nervous system. If we improve the way that we breathe, can we improve the way that we feel and the way that we function? Yes, a hundred percent. And I had, um, I've got, I've got a GP that um, I work closely with that refers on clients that are struggling with like stress, anxiety, and often comes on with some like gut issues around that as well. And did have one person recently who we got on really well after the after the first session, but um, at the beginning of the first session, I could tell he was a little bit like, um, you know is this really going to do anything for me type of thing? And we, we had a good session and we just did some very basic stuff in this first session. And after a week, he come back and he was like, Jacko, I, um, I've got to be honest. I didn't think this was going to, I was like, when I got referred on by the doc to, to do some, some breathing, he was like, what's that going to do? That's just like, you say, it's just automatic. And he was like, I can't believe in one week the difference that it's had. Mm. And all we were doing was some really simple, just stuff we talked about here about, just like, can you breathe through your nose? Can you, uh, can you slow things down? He noticed, oh, we noticed that he was, um, he was doing a lot of sighing and yawning. <sighs> and if people catch themselves doing that, that's a sign of dysfunctional breathing. And it's this again, it's like, <sighs> what's that? It's a fast exhale getting rid of CO2. Your body basically go, your brain going like, oh, I don't like all this CO2, get rid of it. So what we do is we just very simply, after you've done that, if you notice yourself <sighs> doing that sigh, then just pause. Pause three, four, five seconds, build up to maybe 10 in time, but a few seconds, just pause, hold the breath just to allow that CO2 to build up that you've just got rid of. Not stressfully, but just for a few seconds. And it just gives you also a little bit of awareness about your breathing, give you something to think about that I want you to check, notice when you're, when you are saying, and then, um, and it was like, for him, it was like five seconds, these little five second chunks of just like stillness mm. of like stopping. It was like, it just, it, it was, it just changed, it changed everything for him. Yeah. It was as simple as that. It goes back in, I guess, to a lot of people have no, uh, no awareness of what they what they are doing with their bodies or or, or again that therefore then their their minds and they're just wondering and if they're in a stressful time i guess it it feeds in again to being a little mm. bit more present and then you get the benefits of improving your breathing when you do become present yeah and um, so yeah. It's a, there's there's multiple benefits again there i think th we've covered so much and i, I want to <laughs> give people a few more tips just before you know i let you get on with your evening but you're someone who's been through you know quite a great deal of adversity uh, with your head injury and your complete change of career. On a more broad scale, you're, you're hugely into the breath work, but for anyone out there who's facing their like, own challenges or adversity, do you have any advice that sort of helped get you through or that you've learned along the way um, for anyone, anyone listening? The, let's, we'll start with the breathing. Because one thing I was going to say about that, you mentioned a couple of things around the breathing that, that, that sort of, just triggered something for me to to remind myself of like one of the things that 
you, you, you were talking about that like mindfulness and that presence is happening in the present moment. I've found tuning into my breathing and trying to improve the way I breathe has like reconnected me to my body. And that might sound a bit weird because I was like this. If I heard myself say this 10 years ago, I'd have been like, what is that weirdo talking about? Hmm. But when I played rugby, um, I played, um, so actually if that was my, I got given it 360. That's the number of games I played. They gave me that when I retired. Three, I played 316 games. I've been, I've been looking at that it, just behind your shoulder. Jacko has, for anyone listening to this on audio, Jacko <laughs> has Jacko 316 on a shirt and a rugby shirt behind him. And I remember reading, it was one of the stats I'd written down that you, is it 316 oh, right, caps for, for Nottingham? And he did actually, he didn't mention it, but he's got over a hundred tries. So this is a serious rugby play we've got. On <laughs> but the, so I've, I probably, if, those, if you think 316 games, probably I bet over 300 of them, I'll have been in pain before the game started. And just because, not, not like, obviously we played, but just it's the type of sport where you've always got, there's always, everyone's always got some sort of niggle. They've got something taped up or something, whatever. So what you tend to train yourself to do without realizing you're just dumbing down that like communication that your body is trying to give you to say like, Pain is a way of your body saying something's not right. And so it's like, and a lot of people have like really bad pain or a little bit of pain or just everything in between. But it's your body's way of saying, hey, look, this part of me doesn't feel very good, doesn't feel right. Like we need to probably do something about it. And I just dumbed that down, I think, over a long period of time. And and seeing injuries and pain as like my body letting me down yeah. and then actually having quite a negative relationship mentally between me and my body, even though you are your body, but does that make sense? Like yeah, between like your head and yeah. your, your body. And uh, I have a completely different relationship of this, of this. I've not talked about this before, actually. This is a, this is the first for me to talk about this on a, on a podcast. I've not really even talked about this to anyone before, but having, yeah, having a, having bit feeling like feeling good about my body in terms of like, yeah, I, 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 I want to say I can hear it, but I can't hear, it's not like an audible sound, but it's like, I, I know it better. I can feel it better. It's that understanding, um, isn't it? I've had a, like a, yeah. a similar thing in a way with, with yoga. I mean, I used to play rugby and I used to go to the gym a hell of a lot, but I don't do that as much anymore. And I, at a certain point, a couple of years ago, I started doing some yoga and it forces you to have a relationship with your body. And again, something I've not really thought about too much in depth, but it's so important, that connection. And huh. I'd not, never thought about that with rugby either is, yeah, you, you are in pain, but you you have to, have to dumb that down or, or numb it because you've got to go we out and to do take, your job we had a pill it was just called big red there was just these big red big red pills it's like give us a big like it was just a pay i don't know even i don't even know what painkiller it was we called them big reds you hope it was it's a painkiller like, just dumb the pain yeah exactly um and then the other so unrelated to to so it just engage with like your breathing because it is probably it's the greatest gateway Oh, it's the easiest gateway for you into your nervous system, for sure. That's the easiest thing to, to when we, you know, literally when we um, slow down and extend some exhales, that that taps into the parasympathetic side, the relaxation side of sure. the, the autonomic nervous system. It is, it, it is, there's a direct relation and, and correlation to that. And you can choose to slow down your breathing and you're going to feel some physiological differences. Um, but at the same time, being a bit more aware of your breathing and how you feel when you're breathing, where do you hold tension in the body when you're breathing? Like will help you just connect to your body better. Um, life, I think, and I'm bad for this of like, you know, we've got our phone and we've got Instagram and we've got this, we've got the emails and I've got the, and you can just busy yourself just constantly and never actually stop. 
and there's opportunities to to do that with with breathing i think i never i never engaged in like let's stop and be mindful it was almost the breathing allowed me gave me a tool to to do that and i think for anyone who has ever struggled with meditation or mindfulness and then they go oh it's not for me i've got a busy mind i, I yeah. don't have a bit of time for that it. was me i think i think yeah. i think with breath work the thing i found when i've done it is it's a bit easier for people like that, like myself or yourself, to get yeah. into breathwork because what you're doing is something 100%. active. When I when yeah. I've ever like lay lay down, you know, tried to do a guided meditation or tried to do it on my own, I find my brain goes, my mind goes quite quickly away from things. <laughs> and where when you're doing a, a you know a breathing exercise, you can just do the the three four five breathing is something I've spoken about before. You could do some of the nasal breathing you mentioned there. Um, tons of different techniques that you can do, whether yeah. it's a breath hold or whatnot. You're doing something active with your mind. You might not be doing quite the same as what a traditional meditation teacher would say, but actually you're still getting yeah. a lot of the benefits that we talk about with mindfulness. Uh, and I think yeah. it's a brilliant little hack, like you say, to get quite yeah. deeply into changing our physiology and changing our psyche, both in one. It's yeah. one of the easiest things you can do. Yeah, definitely. I love to round my podcast off with one final question. I ask everyone something fairly similar and it's what's your best tip if you could give one tip to someone if you can keep it to one sometimes hard it's fairly broad, <laughs> to improve their health and happiness um if you see the sea you've got to go in it <laughs> that could be my favorite that's, more, that's so my far. rule that's that's my life rule that's that's life rule number one um that's not necessarily a tip um <laughs> <laughs> my tip i would say um this is just something something that's been on on my mind recently of depending on what the type of, of of people like we're often a lot of us and you're you know you're a doctor you'll be the same like you have a aspiration or a desire to help other people that's one of the reasons why I live become a doctor um i love I love helping somebody improve their happiness their life their physiology their their well being by improving their breathing um but I know that I am I'm the best version of myself to be able to do that when I actually provide and take to take some time to have some self-care. Um, so being selfish, but it's not selfish because it's so that you can then be a better version of yourself. And it's very easy, I think, and very noble not to put ourselves first. And I'm not talking about always putting yourself first, yeah. but there's there's a time and a place to like, check in on yourself and go, how am I, how am I doing? And, and do I need to actually do something for me, which might be, I'm going to actually stop rather than doing this next task or this next job, which I feel like I should do. I'm going to take five minutes to go for a walk. And I'm going to have a mindful walk. I'm going to think about my breathing when I'm walking and just observe some nice countryside or a tree or anything. Try and get out of Try and get in nature. Nature is very good for that. Like yeah. that parasympathetic, that relaxation and, and in grounding you self-care is not selfish exactly it's totally. certainly not i completely agree with that and i think um i know a lot of people that put other people first but it's so important these days <clears throat> with everything that's going on around us how busy we can be you never get a chance to switch off but you have to make time for yourself um something yeah. i'm hyper aware of now i've moved to london it is bloody hard to get, yeah, get yeah, away yeah, from yeah, it but that's the way of the world um jacko it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for sitting down uh there's tons of really useful tips for people there's been a bit of a delve into the science and and just loads of good you know nuggets of life knowledge so uh, i appreciate it um 
I'm looking forward to keeping up with your journey with uh, with the breathwork and oxygen advantage. I know I've learned a lot. So anyone that wants to give Jacko a follow on Instagram, do you want to, do you want to shout out your uh, your Instagrams? Yeah, just say like pleasure all my men and love. Uh, thanks for having us on and, and love the work that, that you're doing. And, you know, I could... I could never be a doctor. Oh my word! I just—it's just too, too, too hard. I can't imagine what it's like. So fair play to you, and or tip of the hat to you and all of your, all of your colleagues. Um, yeah, Instagram is Jacko Human Flag. We talked about that. That, that was because I like doing. It. It's probably more about just being human these days. Than just being human <laughs> Less flags. flag, more human. Uh, website is uh, well the school the scorecast NX is scorecast NX and the website scorecastnx.com. The all of the breathwork and the more holistic health stuff that I do is with rootedlife.co.uk. And I'll send you and your uh, your friend my uh, my new uh, sports performance breathwork. Look forward to reading it. So she can absolutely. Give her the uh, the tools to be able to nasal breathe. It will be you just have to stick with it, and I promise it's like. But just at the start, you got to take a step back. Spot on. Cheers, Jacko. All the best. Uh, catch you soon. Cheers, man. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Straight Talking Doctor Pod. I hope you not only found this episode interesting, but also hopefully learned something that you can use to help improve your life. If you enjoyed the podcast, or even if you didn't, I'd be so, so grateful if you could go onto your streaming site and leave a five-star review so that I can reach as many people as possible. Finally, if you have any feedback or suggestions for further guests, please get in touch with me at The Straight Talking Doctor on Instagram. 